You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. Thank you, Matt. And welcome back. At this time, we want to dismiss children who would like to participate in Children's Church to go to the Children's Wing of the Church. That's through second grade. While they're exiting, I want to give a couple of shout outs to some people. Uh, Austin, where are you? Austin is back from Haiti. He's in the back there. And if you guys have a chance to stop him this morning and hear about his trip, you will, you will really be blessed. It's kind of neat to be a part of a body that's sending people around the world and ministering and sharing the gospel. Another couple I want to recognize are the Baileys. One week of marriage under their belt back from Cancun, Mexico. Um, had the privilege of marrying them uh, two weeks ago. And so, so good to have you guys with us this morning. I want to thank uh, Pat for making my week uncomfortable. I don't know about you, but it kept running through my mind. 99% is not enough. You know, Jesus is worth 100% of our life, of our loyalty, of our love. And I have to confess that I fell short, shorter than 99%, and uh, talked to Pat through the week about that. But I don't know about you, that's just uh, echoing through my mind. And I appreciated the the challenge and appreciate him very, very much. A few years ago, Scott Wesley Brown wrote a song called I Wish You Jesus. And though he took a very different approach, he was really communicating the same message that the Apostle Paul is holding up for us this morning and was giving to the Colossian church. Scott Wesley Brown said it this way. He says, I could wish you joy and peace to last a whole life long. I could wish you sunshine or a cheerful little song or wish you all the happiness that this life could bring, but I wish you Jesus more than anything. I could wish you leaves of gold and may your path be smooth. I could wish you treasures or that all your dreams come true. And I could wish you paradise that every day be spring, but I wish you Jesus. Because when I've wished you Jesus, I've wished you everything. This is really the message that the Apostle Paul is holding up. He is saying, though he says it very, very differently, Jesus is all you need. Because if you have Jesus, you have all there is because Jesus is God and there is no one greater than God. So if you are in Christ, you hold everything that is needed for life and living. And what he's saying is it's foolish to look anywhere else. In fact, you'll be derailed and deceived if you turn your eyes to any other source for spiritual wisdom or insight. Jesus is where we need to fix our eyes completely. There was false teaching going on in the Colossian church. And they were teaching that Jesus was a part of your spiritual vitality, but he didn't hold it all. And so they were holding up mysticism, which was the worship of angels that you needed to get revelation outside of what Jesus and the gospel held. And Paul is saying, don't believe it. Yeah. And he was, there were others holding up the, the view of, of legalism. that was basically a return to the Old Testament law and that you needed Jesus plus the law. And Paul's saying, don't buy it. Because it's not true. Or there's aestheticism, which basically said that the the nurturing or the taking care of the body was wrong because it was at the very beginning of Gnosticism, which believed that um, physical things couldn't be spiritual. And that actually the taking care of your physical needs 
proved that you weren't as serious about the spiritual things. And so people didn't bathe. They denied themselves basic needs. And Paul's saying, don't buy into it. There's nothing more required for you to know and walk with God and have everything that you need for life and living than what Jesus has provided for you. And so this morning, we want to look at that. And it is really one of the, one of the premier passages of Scripture in all of the Bible relating to who Jesus is. So open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 1. This morning we'll be looking at verses 15 through 23, and please pray for me because I have far more to say than I have time to say it in, and I know that you would appreciate me being on time. And so I want to end with us being friends. The Word of God says this, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, or rulers, or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical death through death to present the holy, you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, steadfast and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, through your spirit this morning, give us the ability to, to see beyond the words and to bring Jesus into focus. God, to understand all that you are wanting to communicate to us about who Jesus is, what he has done, and why he is worthy of our wholehearted worship. Lord, this morning, compel us in undeniable ways to give ourselves wholeheartedly to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage really lays out two arguments. The first is, who is Jesus? And the second is, what he has done for you. And, and honestly, there aren't words that can truly express those two truths. Because when you realize who Jesus is, that he is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of everything, the sustainer of everything, the preeminent one in the universe. And that person loved you enough to take on flesh and blood and to come and die a horrible death, shedding his blood that you might be reconciled to him. That is an unbelievable truth. And that is the truth that we get to hold and know and live into and grow in every single day. And so my hope is that at the end of this, you will be so moved by who Jesus is and what he's done that you, like the Apostle Paul, will say, I have given myself to his service. 
to who he is because it is an enormous privilege to call ourselves children of God to be a part of his family. So who is Christ? It's a question that continues to be asked. The Apostle Paul lays it out in verse 15. He says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So what does that mean? He is the image of the invisible God. Image is really the word that we get icon from. And what it means is this, is he is the visible expression of God. Paul is saying in Christ, the invisible God has become visible. The Apostle John said it this way, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only Son of God, sent from the Father, full of grace and truth. To behold is literally to see, it's to touch, it's to experience. And so this truth is, is what, what the Apostle Paul is saying is that Jesus is God in flesh and blood. And that was the heresy that the, the Colossians were being confronted with. Basically, the, the false teachers were saying, because Jesus was a man, he couldn't be God. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is, you're missing it. God loved man so much that he became a man so that we could relate to him. That's an amazing truth, and that's a truth that a vast number of people in this world don't believe. In fact, if you talk to a Muslim, they would take the incarnation of Christ as an insult to God. They would basically say, look, God is so great that for him to even be concerned about flesh and blood and about human beings diminishes his greatness. And so we are put in contrast with all the other worldviews based on this doctrine that Jesus was God in flesh and blood and that he walked this earth so that he could better understand who we are and that we could better understand him. That's phenomenal. That's the God that we worship. He is, as we will see, the fullness of God. Lacked no part, nothing. He is equal with the Father. And so he goes on, he says, this is the firstborn over all creation. But what does that mean? If you were a part of a culture in Jesus' day, you would understand exactly what the Apostle Paul was saying. Because he's not saying here that he was born. He's not even talking about birth order. He's talking about position. And he holds the highest position of all beings. He is not speaking of his birth order. He's speaking of his position. And this is what it means. This is this. The firstborn in Jesus' day got all of the wealth, all of the status, all the standing, all the power that the family held. And so basically in this statement, what Paul is saying is Jesus and God the Father are equal because he's firstborn. He holds all the authority that the Father holds. He and the Father are one and the same. There is no difference. So when Jesus speaks, it's as if the Father were speaking. This is what he is saying. So what Jesus says, you can bank on. You can hold to it because it's true and there's no other voice or message or revelation to seek apart from that with Jesus' giving because Jesus speaks on behalf of God because he's God. And so when we want to understand life and living, the best place to go is the living man of God because he understood our world and he understood our need and he came in complete fullness of the Godhead. So the Apostle Paul begins in that very short first sentence by laying out two arguments. 
He is the image of the invisible God and he is the firstborn. He is equal in position and he is fully God in the flesh. He goes on to explain the greatness of God by saying this. Jesus is not only God, but as God, he is the creator and the sustainer of all things. So you want to know just how great he is? He lays it out for us in verses 16 and 17, where he talks about Jesus as a creator. We read these words. For by him or in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things were created by him and for him. There are three specific phrases used here to describe Jesus' work or part in creation. <laughs> the first, if you've if you got a pencil, circle, it says for by or in, circle that in, and then the by and the for. These prepositions lay out the work of Jesus. It says for in him, and what the Apostle Paul is communicating is this, that it's understood that in his mind, as you look at creation, Jesus was the designer. Jesus was the architect. Jesus was the planner of creation. And then he unfolds the depth of creation. He says this, things in heaven, things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Now, wow, all, so much could be said here. Because what Paul is pointing to is the complexity of creation reveals the superiority of God. Because he is the creator, the imaginer, the architect. He says, when you look at the world, and he says things in heaven and earth, the heaven is plural. So he's really addressing the dimensions of creation, which science has unfolded. In fact, Einstein in 1915 gave proof to the four dimensions in which we live. And then physicists in 1953 proved that there were at least six and the possibility of 10 dimensions beyond the ones that we know. That's a world that we can't even wrap our mind around. And then Paul talks about the angels that exist or the beings that are part of those other dimensions. And he's not denying the existence of angels. He's basically saying they're created beings and they're not worthy of worship and they're not to be looked to for revelation. They're just a different expression of God's creation. So when we look at the world and its complexity and its depth, you see and you get insight into the greatness of God because Jesus, he's saying, is basically the architect. It began in his mind. Before anything existed, it existed in his thoughts. And then he moves on and he says, for, for all things were created by him. Not only did he think it, he then spoke it into existence. This isn't to say that the other parts of the Godhead were not involved in creation, but it's, it's recognizing the specific role and participation of Jesus in it. So he goes on and he says, not only did he plan it, but he produced it. So everything that you know, and everything that you can see, and the things that you can't see but know are there, God actually gave expression to. He built it. He produced it. And he goes on, and he says not only did he produced it, but he produced it for his purposes, for his glory. It all exists for him. We're gonna keep coming back to this. Because this, again, when we work through this, lays out the purpose of our existence. We exist for the glory of God. 
to reflect uniquely who we are, the uniqueness of who God is expressed in who we are. And if you're looking for purpose in life, this is it. It's to come to know Jesus and to reflect him in all that you do. So let me illustrate what what Paul's talking about. Let's say, and I realize every illustration breaks down, but let's say you were going to make a sculpture, a sculpture, and it begins with imagining what you want to create. And so this is what Paul says, is Paul first says, God conceived creation. And then you get an idea of what you want to sculpt, and then you put your hands to it, and you pull together what is required to produce it. So you sculpt this beautiful sculpture. And then what he's saying is this, that everyone who then sees that creation learns something of its creator because the art reveals the artist. And so what Paul is saying is if you want to begin to understand the greatness of God, you can look at creation and you can see his fingerprints on it. You see his omniscience. You see his omnipotence. You see his faithfulness as you look at creation because... Creation reveals the wisdom of the creator. Now, before we run through this, let's personalize this. What does this mean for you as a created being? Here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Scripture tells us this. For you were formed, your inward parts, knit together by God. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the beads of sand. You know, we read that and we think about that, but what does that mean? Now, let me put that in scope. You are created being by God. And God was personally involved in your creation. So if you take your genetic code, your DNA, and you break it down, this is what it involves. There are three billion words required to write your genetic code. Now, to give you an idea of what that looks like, the King James Version of the Bible has 783,137 words in it. So if your genetic code were to be written out, it would be 4,000 Bibles. And if it were to be read back to you by audio version, it would take a full century to put into words the complexity of who you are. Now, does that give a little bit more meaning to... God's thoughts of you outnumber sand. God was intricately involved in creating you in the amazingness of who you are outside of just how your body functions, the intricacy of the eye, the mind. The mind still boggles scientists. I had a hard time realizing this next fact I was going to say because I said, that can't be. I said, that's just too much. But this is what scientists say. Do you know that your brain is performing up to 10 quadrillion calculations every second and only using 10 watts of energy? That's amazing. And I'll tell you what, as amazing as science is today, we are just at the very tip of the iceberg of understanding the brilliance the omniscience of God that is held or revealed probably at just a micro level in creation. Now that's an idea of what God's involved in with you, but you ever have days where you don't feel like you haven't accomplished much? Let's, let's look at what we have accomplished and kind of stepping back and looking at the greatness of the universe. 
Do you realize that you think or you believe that you're sitting still right now? That's an illusion. Because in reality, you are on a planet that is spinning at a thousand miles an hour and somehow we're not just flung off of the earth. Thousand miles an hour. But not only are you spinning a thousand miles an hour, but you're being hurtled through space, and catch this, at 67,108 miles an hour. And we feel like we're sitting still. So on a day when you feel like you have not accomplished much, you have actually been traveling 87 times faster than the speed of sound, and you have literally traveled 1,593,793 miles, miles every single day. That's amazing, isn't it? Now, I want to hold that up because truth is so much greater than what we can conceive. You thought you were sitting still. Proof is, you're flying through space. And apart from Jesus' revelation, we wouldn't understand the amazingness of what God has made us a part of. There was so much more than what we realize. And the beauty of this passage is he's saying, if you want to press into it, the Bible's not a science book, but the Bible is the book of life. If you want to know what really makes life living, worthy, just look to Jesus because he is the creator and the sustainer of all things. He goes on, verse 17. He says, he is before all things, speaking of his eternal nature, separating those who would use this as a passage to say that he was a created being because of the terminology that had been used. He states right up front, he was before all things because he was the creator of all things. And he says, and in him, all things are held together. Now, what does that mean? I think on a personal level, that means this, is God didn't just set creation in motion and then take his hands off of it. God is still intricately involved in holding things together. If he took his hand off of his creation, it would implode. And we could talk about the power of nuclear energy and all of that is in God, but that's beyond me. It truly is. But what this does say to me is that science doesn't define God, God defines science. We can study science and develop laws because of the faithfulness, because of the omniscience, because of the omnipotence of God. It didn't exist apart from God, it exists because of God and it points to the majesty of God. And this is why the Apostle Paul in Romans wrote this, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. See, the art reveals the artist. Creation reveals the creator. And as big and as great as it is, it was simply spoken into existence by the God of the universe. Jesus is not only God, Paul says, and the creator and the sustainer of all things, but he is also the head and the originator of the church. 
We read these words. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that everything he might have the preeminence. Now, head here doesn't speak as he's the, he's the head of the institution. He's the head of the company. It's a, it's the, the church is a living organism, and it really speaks that Jesus is the organic head. That you separate the body from the head, and you lose the life. Jesus is the creator and the source of the church. Now, this is going to make more sense as we start to peel this onion because the church is the source of the hope of, of, of the redemption or the reconciliation of God's creation to him. And so he says he's not just the creator of the physical, but he is the recreator of the world because the beautiful nature of God is as great as he is when, when man rebelled, when his creation rebelled against its creator, he cared enough to provide a solution. And here's the beautiful thing. We are a part of the church. And for lack of time, we can't go on to that. But here it is. When you came to Christ, you were placed, you were fused into the body of Christ. You are a part of Christ. So the fullness that dwells in him dwells in you. And the power that Patrick talked about last week that is available to us as Christians is what manifests to us every day in creation. And that's just a small reminder to us of what's available, what's been provided for us to live out the purpose of God in our lives. For the sake of time, I'm going to keep pushing says this in verse 19. He basically lays out that Jesus is the preeminent one, that there is no one greater than him. He says, for all the fullness dwells in him. All that God is is present in Christ. And so Paul basically is restating. If you missed it the first time, let me make it really clear to you. Everything that is God is in Jesus, revealed to you in flesh and blood, so that you can know God That's amazing. Because then it goes on. And Paul has just laid out who God is, who Jesus is, and then he goes through what he has done for us. And this is when it gets astonishing. Because if you were impressed with who he was as the creator, you're going to be blown away by what he's done as the Savior. We read these words, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ through his physical body to the death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, have become a servant. In this passage, Paul lays out four things of what Christ has done for us. And he basically says this. He came up with the plan of reconciliation he implemented the means, and he's provided us the evidence of our reconciliation to God. So if you were going to describe these verses in one word, it would be reconciliation. And the truth is this. God has, Jesus has reconciled us back to God through his work on the cross, 
through his shed blood in dying for us. The plan of salvation he lays out for us. He says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his shed blood on the cross. Now here's what's amazing. That person that was just described to us cared enough about you and me, loved his creatures, his creation enough that when we, the creatures, rebelled against the creator, he came up with a plan to restore that relationship. Now that doesn't just speak to his nature, that speaks to the character of his nature. See, God is worthy of our worship, not, because, not simply because of the greatness of who he is, but it's the generosity in who he is. That supreme, sovereign being humbled himself to the point of death to be the propitiation, to be the payment for our sin. And that's the whole emphasis of the blood. Blood was required to pay the price for our sin. So Jesus came up with the plan to lay down his own life because the wages of sin were death. In rebellion against God, we deserve to die, but he chose to shed his blood to die in our place. Now that is really unimaginable. When you, when you start to wrap your arms around who God is, that that person would lay down his life for you and me is truly mind-boggling. He was the means of reconciliation. He actually died in our place. Thus the purpose of taking on flesh and blood and coming into the world and shedding his blood for us. At the beginning of the summer, um, I had <clears throat> something shared with me from my kids that you just hate to hear. Come. It's, Dad, I think the air conditioner's broken. It's like, oh no, that's not good news. Because I know nothing about how to fix an air conditioning. You know, I am, it is beyond my means to solve that problem. So I had to call somebody else to do that. And so we called an air conditioner uh, repairman and he came out and delivered more bad news. <laughs> that it was a really serious problem and that the cost of fixing the air conditioning, which I didn't have the means to fix, was beyond what I could afford to pay. So I was in a dilemma. And then the greatest news came to me. The air conditioner repairman said, somebody's taking care of this for you. I said, oh, thank God. Because I didn't have the means or the wealth. Now, in a sense, that's the gospel. Yeah, yeah. Good. You know, we're all at a place where we have a need that we are unable to fix ourselves. We are sinners, and there's nothing that we can do to change that. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, and we all deserve to die. That's the penalty. That's the wage. That's the cost of fixing the air conditioner. Now, my options were to live in the heat or accept this man's grace. Guess what I chose? 
Now, that's the same choice God asks of every one of us. Do you want to face life alone? Do you want to face eternity separated from me? Do you want to pay the price for your own sin? Or do you want to accept my payment on your behalf? That's the gospel. And the amazingness of the gospel, it goes beyond just Jesus saving us. In these next verses, in verse 22b, he goes on and he says, to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So God not only saves us, he sanctifies us. He gives us his holiness, his righteousness. He makes us perfect so that we can have an intimate, relational, personal relationship with him. Because God can't embrace sin, and so he makes us sinless in him so that he can embrace us and we can enjoy the Creator in a personal, intimate way. That's an amazing truth again. That the God of creation wants to share life with you and has made the provision for that to take place. And the beautiful thing is, is we don't have to prove anything. The gospel has taken care of it all. Jesus has paid it all and we are now perfect in his sight. And the spiritual journey, the maturation process is our discovering who we are in Christ. It's our discovering the perfection. It's the reality of, of revealing externally what is internally true of who I am. I am now without spot, without blemish, without accusation, because in Christ I stand fully accepted by God, completely righteous, fully holy, and, listen to this, positioned to fulfill the plans and purposes that God created in my genetic code, all those possibilities now can actually be lived out perfectly. God's made you whole in making you holy. God's brought you shalom and peace. So there is nothing for you to prove. There is no anxiety for you to carry as you approach life because he wants you to rest in just the, the perfection of who he's made you to be. I think in this passage, three of the most important things that you wrestle with in life are addressed. The first is who is God? The second is, what is the gospel? And the third is then who you are in God. Because when you understand those things, you are filled with an absolute peace, power, possibility that frees you to be the you God originally created you in those billions of codes to be. Now, how do you step into that? That's the maturation process, and that's what he dresses in in verse 23. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you held and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, have become a servant. If you continue, if you persevere in the faith, it gives proof that you are reconciled to God. Our sanctification externally is a process. Internally, you are holy. Externally, we all know practically we fall short. And God doesn't expect you to be sinless, but he does expect you to sin less as you discover more of who he is and who you are in him so that his glory is more perfectly displayed in who you are as a person. The hope... This is great. Biblically, hope isn't a, oh, you know, I hope so. Uh, You know, it's not a hope so hope. It's a no so hope. 
It rests in the assurances of the promises of God. So you don't have to question, you don't have to wonder, you know, and it's in the hope of the gospel, and the gospel is the good news that God has provided everything that you need, that you don't have to work for your salvation, we're simply working out our salvation, and that moves us from a have to to a get to. I don't have to obey God to be accepted by God. I get to walk with the creator of the universe. I get to uncover and experience the greatness and the power of God in my life every single day because of what he has done for me. And I am free from feeling any pressure to be anything other than what God has created me to be. God wants your love more than anything else and your loyalty based on his love and loyalty to you. We are reciprocating a love relationship. And that's why he came to reveal his heart to us, and then through us to the world, reveal his heart and his person. And that's amazing. That's the purpose of life, is now to carry that message, that ministry of reconciliation God has invited us into. And if you've wondered what life's about, this passage holds it for us. Life is really about revealing in who God has made you to be his person. And when you do that, that's the four. That's the reason everything was created. When you find your place, when you plug into your purpose, when you give yourself the freedom to be you, not to follow religious rules and regulations, not to earn anything other than praise from God for simply being you. And this is where Paul ends. He says that he has become a servant to this, a slave to this. He has come full circle in everything he said. He says, I've come to realize that there's nothing more worthy of my life than service to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now, here's the question. We were created beings and we were created to reveal God in our worship. The question isn't whether you will worship, it's what or who you worship. Who holds the preeminent place in your life? To ask it another way, what do you really live for? Because if Jesus doesn't hold that place, something else will take it. And in that something else is going to rob from you God's very best for you. No matter how much we think it deserves that preeminent place in our lives, and so for a lot of us, there's some really good things that take that. For some of us, it's, it's us, and that's not so good. But for others, you know, it's our wife, it's our kids, it's our work, it's our reputation. What do you live for? What Paul is saying here and what Pat talked about last week and what Paul's reinforced this week. It's the only thing that is really worthy of your worship, of your wholehearted love and loyalty is Jesus. Because when Jesus takes that place, it makes you better at everything else. You become a better husband. You become a better father. You become a better employer. You become a better boss, neighbor, human being. And if we allow anything else 
to have that place. Whether we believe it or not, we are probably victim to the same kind of heresy that Paul's warning against. Because he is saying this, if you really want to, if you want to really know the secret to life and living, it's making Jesus the sovereign preeminent Lord of your life. And in making that choice, you will have freed yourself to be the you God created you to be. It's liberating to love God wholeheartedly. My prayer is this, that we become a people or 100% committed to Christ. And that we're honest enough with each other to admit that sometimes I'm only 51% of the way there. And that we love each other enough to keep encouraging each other to the worthiness of Jesus to continually to give our hearts to him. Now we're not gonna do that beating you up. That's not how Jesus did it. We're gonna do that by loving you and encouraging you and pointing you to Jesus because he's the answer. Paul ends this and we're gonna unfold this through the book. He's saying, keep your eyes focused on Jesus. And so we're not asking you to look to us as elders, pastors. Hopefully we are living a good example, but in that example, we're pointing you to Jesus because there is no other answer. The Sunday school joke is true. You know, if you don't know the answer, just say Jesus because Jesus really is the answer to everything. And that's funny, but it's also true. Look to Jesus. Because he is the author and the finisher of our faith. He holds every answer to life that you're looking for. And he is worthy of your worship. I'm going to close by sharing a story. Walt Kaiser, one of the great Old Testament theologians. His testimony is pretty amazing. He was kind of a hell raiser um, as, a, as a young man. He lived during World War II. was a soldier and was paired with another soldier who was a strong Christian. Now, Walt thought this man's faith was absolutely ridiculous, fairy tale kind of stuff. And honestly, if you're not of the faith, it really does sound like an absolute fairy tale. And so he kind of ridiculed this young man for his commitment to Christ, for his discipline in not indulging the flesh. And so, in the heat of a battle, they were in a foxhole together, and a grenade came rolling into the foxhole. And the Christian had a split second to think about what he would do. And he quickly took his helmet off, threw it over the grenade, and then smothered it with his body, sacrificing his life for Waltz. Waltz says, I was so moved by that. That I dedicated my life to living worthy of the one who died for me. And he said, in seeking to live worthy, the one who died for me, I came to know the one who really was the author of life itself, the one who's truly worthy of our lives. The truth is, every one of us has said, someone, Jesus, die for us that we might live. 
And my hope is that God has brought into focus just a little bit clearer the worthiness of that one who died for you so that you can more easily relinquish control of your own life to dedicate yourself to living worthy of the one who actually gave us life. May we as a people be found worthy. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.